Turn, please, to 1 Peter in chapter 4. 1 Peter in chapter 4. I just want to read verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, please. Hear the word of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. These are awfully chilling words, especially this beginning that says, the end of all things is at hand. And I wonder if Peter's readers believed it any more than we do. Can you even imagine what that might mean, that the end of all things is at hand, the end of, of, of marrying and giving in marriage, as the scripture says, the end of eating and drinking as we're accustomed to, and we know all about that, of driving around, of getting an education, of, of, uh, of living in our family lives the way that we do. Election, the end of that. Well, life, sort of, in a sense, as we know it, the end of all things is, is at hand. It's rather astounding to think. And you get this impression from Peter that this could come at any moment, at least. By him it could have come then, it could have come later. But still, he says it's certainly a reality, the end of all things, because it is at hand. And you might wonder, can we really trust Peter here? I mean, after all, he wrote this a long time ago, and the end still hasn't, still hasn't come. I mean, he sounds a bit like the scoffers that he mentions in Second Peter in chapter 3, verse 4, where Peter says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? I mean, ever since the ascension of Jesus, people have been saying, Christians have been saying, he's going to come back, and he hasn't. And so, can we really take Peter here when he says, the end of all things is at hand, or in some versions, the end of all things uh, is near. I, I think we can take him as being truthful, as writing, as speaking the truth, because I don't think that Peter is trying to give us some sort of special prediction here. He would have known the words of Jesus, for instance, in Matthew in chapter 24 and verse uh, 36, after Jesus speaks of signs of his coming. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Peter would have known that, that there's no way good way to make a prediction. Unlike this gentleman here that I have in my library, Edward C. Weinsnot, who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. Now, I'm not a big fan of pre-tribulational rapture, but this is one of those kinds of books that you need to sell before the dates. <laughs> I was pleased that on the cover it says $2, so I didn't spend much on it. But it's foolishness. I often write in the first page of books in my library, just in case my kids inherit my library, I don't want them to be confused about which books were good and which books weren't, because I keep a variety. I just simply put, this book is utter nonsense. <laughs> I keep it as an example of wrong-headed and irresponsible exegesis. Now, Peter wasn't nonsense, nor was he irresponsible with the word that he got. He wasn't wrong in what he had to say. There would be a time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. He had listened to the parables of Jesus. He knew the parable of the ten virgins who were awaiting the bridegroom, five with enough oil, five that didn't been the reason that there was an issue about the oil, of course, was because the bridegroom was delayed. It was a time. 
He knew the parable of the talents. He knew that, that there was a master who had come and a master who had given uh, um, various amounts of resources to various servants. And then the master went away. And then the master came back. And so he knew that there would be a time. He knew the teaching of Jesus, that certain things had to take place in order for uh, the end to come. For instance, as Jesus um, taught, we have in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, as he, that is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. So he's talking about the signs of the end of the age. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the, of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and, you will be, and, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So Peter was quite aware that a number of things had to take place before the end would come. He knew there would be false Christs. He knew there would be wars and rumors of wars. He knew that there would be persecution on those who claimed the name of Christ. He knew that the gospel would be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Later, Jesus says that the, the Jerusalem would be destroyed. That hadn't happened at the time of Peter's writing. It would happen sometime thereafter, but it hadn't happened at that point in time. In fact, Peter knew that Jesus wouldn't return until after Peter himself died. You might remember that in the, this session that Jesus has with Peter after the resurrection, but before the ascension in John chapter 21, Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you, will not, where you do not want to go. And then he said, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter knew that Jesus wasn't going to return before Peter died. Because Jesus said, here's how you're going to die. So he knew it wasn't that day that he was writing unless Peter was going to die that day and Jesus come the next. Now Peter isn't saying giving us a prediction here. But Peter was looking around and he says, you know, there are wars. And there are rumors of wars. And I see the church being persecuted. And I see the gospel going out. And I understand how God counts time. And that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day that is times not counted by God in the same way that we count it. He's being patient at this particular moment, but a day will come when his patience will end. And I see how the history of redemption has taken place. Certainly creation has happened. Certainly sin has happened. Certainly a promise was made. Certainly a call went out to a man named Abraham who became Abraham. Certainly the Israelites spent some time in Egypt and were delivered. Certainly they became a nation and the law was given and a Messiah foreshadowed and kings came and prophets came and then the Messiah came and he lived and died and rose. He ascended. He sent his spirit. And by His Spirit, now the Word of God is going out all over the place. The Gospel is going out 
all over the place. I want to tell you that given all that's taken place and given what I see, wars and rumors of wars and persecuted Christians and, and the gospel going out, given what I've seen, all I can tell you is that the end of all things is at hand. All that's taken place. Not a prediction. Not saying today, tomorrow, the next day. Saying, yes, stuff has to happen. But it can happen very, very quickly. Because Jesus said it will come like a thief. It will come, it will sort of sneak up on us, whether it's today or a thousand years from now. Still, there will be a sense of surprise in the midst of all that. So get in your mind right now, Peter says, that the end of all things uh, is at hand. But we wonder, don't we, what are these all things that the end of which, for the end of which is near? Well, Peter, in 2 Peter in chapter 3, gives us a piece of that. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Peter writes this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Now, just don't pass that by too quickly. Do you have any comprehension what that might look like? That the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars, planets, will dissolve. Or what that might sound like. Or what that might smell like. Or what that might feel like. Peter's saying, this is real. This isn't poetic language. Something devastating, something really for us, let's face it, unimaginable, is going to happen. I don't have a category in my brain for the sun not just being there. And I even lived in New England for a while. But still, there was a sense, it's there somewhere, I know it. But to think that, that something's going to happen like that, that would be so different that everything that we're accustomed to and everything that there were normally sense of security, this is earth, this is what it means to be human, this is what it means to live here, this is what it means to be alive, there's going to be a great change in all of that. He goes on to say, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be uh, exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be uh, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening waiting for um, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the earthly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says it's going to be a tremendous change, a tremendous difference. You'll still recognize something as the earth, but it'll be different because the only thing about it will be righteousness. There'll be a new heavens, but it will be different. You won't recognize it in the same sense as the old because it will be righteousness dwelling. Can you think of that? And that's why I asked the question earlier. Do you, do you think they believed it any more than we do? Do you think they had a category in their brain for this any more than we do? But Peter's saying, no, listen, I want you to tell you this is really true. The end of all things, the end of all things. John sees a glimpse of this, the Apostle. And he writes of it in Revelation in chapter 18, in verse 1. He says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now Babylon was, was the word used for the earth and all that was wrong. 
upon the world. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now that isn't just a reference to, to physical sexual immorality. But he's saying we've committed spiritual adultery with the world that we have trusted. We have been lured by the world, sucked in, if you will, by its, its wisdom and passions and, and its rewards. And we've said that's good and we've exchanged that for faithfulness with God. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then in verse 9, he goes on to write, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, that is, that is who bought in, we begin to think that our education really is, is our civility and refinement, that our armies are our protection and peace that our doctors are our health. You see, the bought in, that the prestige that I have and the standing that I have among people, that's really what's valuable and important, the praise of others in my life. Bought into all that. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for a single hour, for in a single hour your judgment has come. It's like in one hour, in one minute, you look around and you say, everything's right with the world. And in the next minute, you realize that everything that you had put your, your, your stake in, everything that you trusted, everything that was, that was delightful to you, everything that was security to you is now gone. It's just gone. And it isn't anywhere else. It's not that you can leave here and go there and get it. It's gone. Everything looks different than it ever did before. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargoes of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wool, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. Or, of course, cars, retirement packages, clothes, steaks, jewels, rings, trips, and stuff. Just isn't there. All of a sudden, all that stuff isn't there. Verse 14, the fruit, of which, the fruit for which your soul longs has gone from you, and all your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. That is, the end of all things is at hand. I mean, it only takes an hour. One hour it's here. Next hour it's gone. It's just like that. And if that, what, that is what defines you. And if that is what directs your life, and if that's your delight, then you realize the end of all of that, your identity, your leading, your joy,
And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade is on, whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning and said, what city was like the great city? They had no ability to imagine anything greater than that. And it was gone, Peter says. The end of all that is near. Now the question is, what should be our response to that? Because you see, right now it appears as if everything's okay, relatively speaking. I mean, there's some difficulties and all that, but it, but it seems like everything's okay in the context of our lives generally. And, and, and we see in the midst of the world, the world that we've become accustomed to, even as Christians, is that there's some of the kingdom of God we see and, and some of the kingdom of the world and it's as if these two kingdoms live uh, uh, together and, and, and clash from time to time. But Peter's saying, no, you've got to understand the day is going to come when the kingdom of God is going to come and there will be judgment and he will take all those whose sins are not forgiven, all those who do not trust in Christ, all those who still fall under his judgment and his kingdom, his rule will come against them and his rule will be to rule over them in his wrath and punishment, and condemnation, and judgment. And then he will take those who sin are forgiven, those who have trusted in Christ. And his rule will come to them, and he will rule over them in love, and in grace, and in mercy, and in kindness, and in wonderful blessing. Since it's going to be that stark, it's going to be that obvious, the end of all things is at hand. How are we to respond to that. Well, Peter says this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. That is, all this is to, to affect the way that we think, the way that we understand. These two words that in the English Standard Version are self-control and, and sober-mindedness can simply be put, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sane and sober be sane. Uh, clear up everything in how you're thinking to be able to see this very, very clearly. He said there's something about understanding that the end of all things is at hand that should clear your thinking, that should take away all the periphery, all the nonsense, all the buzz, and get you thinking clearly about what's really important, really significant, really is necessary to know and to understand. That it should make you sane in your approach to the world. And then he says, you should be sober-minded, that is, you shouldn't be governed by, intoxicated by, sucked in, lured in, seduced by anything else other than that which is really true. You see, this is helpful to understand. It's helpful to see where things are going so that we can plan today. I mean, that's always good planning. In fact, it could be one of the definitions of maturity. A mature person who can see the end from the beginning, who can see where we're headed and then plan today to get there. It's an immature person who finds themselves lolling around with life, being frivolous with life and frivolous with time, and then at the end of the day realizing I haven't gotten anywhere with this. And there are certain things in the context of life that wake us up to that. For instance, for businessmen, it's often the quarterly report. You think things are going very well in the business and then the accountants bring you the numbers and you look at them and you go, things aren't the way I thought. For parents, it's often that phone call from the guidance counselor. For college students, it's often that meeting 
uh, with your advisor, your graduation advisor, that lays out the 10-year plan that you're on. <laughs> and you see, you need to see the end so that you know how to plan your courses now, because if you don't, you won't be able to make it. Athletes are oftentimes reminded that at halftime. Oh, we didn't quite prepare. They weren't thinking about the rigors of the game at practice, thus they didn't practice to prepare for the game, and now the game is upon them, and it's too late, it feels, at that point in time. With marriages, it's often a word from a spouse to another, you don't understand me, I don't think. I like being around you. And there's a wake-up. You know, it's funny what we're finding these days is not simply marriages breaking down in the first five to seven years as we've always seen, but what we're seeing now is marriages breaking down in years 20 and 30. And the reason being that the question wasn't asked in the first 20 years. What's it going to be like at the end? What do we need to be doing now so that we're prepared when the children leave, when, when we're just the two of us? Karen used to remind me that when the children leave, I would be with her. And the two of us really needed to develop this relationship, not around the children, not around other things, not around projects, but really in the context of life together, so that now that we've been married 11 or 12 years, uh, that we're ready for this time of life because we like each other. And that's important, you see. And so Peter's saying, wake up, church. Wake up. Don't, don't keep going through the motions thinking everything is just fine. Understand that the end of all things is near. Samuel Johnson, theologian, philosopher, once put it like this. He says, depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Moses, better source, put it like this. So teach us to number our days. To God... Remind us that today may be the last, perhaps tomorrow, maybe I have another 10, maybe 70 all told, maybe 80. But don't let me think that it's always going to be just like today. And Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. You see, wisdom comes from understanding that. Wisdom comes from understanding the significance and the seriousness of the moment. And Peter is saying the end of all things is at hand. Understand that today is significant. Understand that today is very important. Don't just while it away. Don't just throw it off. Understand that today is a significant day in the course of your life. Use it in such a way as, as will bring great profit when the end of all things come so that you will be ready for that moment in time, and you will not be one of those who's sitting back and saying, everything that I held dear is now gone. Because you weren't sober-minded, but yet you were intoxicated by the world, and it pulled you in, and you said, all these things uh, that are now gone are the very things that pleased my soul. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Don't get sucked in. Don't get sucked in. Now, I must say, at this Point, Peter surprises a great deal. Because I would expect him to say something like he said in 2 Peter chapter 3. 
when he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Well, I would expect him to say, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded and live holy lives. I would have been happy with that. That would have worked for me. I would have preached it. But he doesn't say that. Not that that's wrong. He says it other places. But here he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's saying prayer is very, 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 very significant, you see. So significant it is that when you're focused on reality, when you're focused on what is really true, when you're not being sucked in by all these other philosophies of life, by these other passions, by anything else that the world would, would hang out for you, when you really understand what's eternal and not just temporary, it'll send you to your knees. It will focus your praying. Because you see, it seems to me now that praying is what I do when I'm seeing things clearly. Praying's what I do when I'm seeing things clearly. When I'm not praying, it must mean that I'm being deceived. It must mean that I think I'm capable. It must mean that I think I've, I've arrived. It must be that I think all my enemies are subdued. It must be that I think life is just hunky-dory and will continue on this way just forever. understand, and you see it clearly, you'll pray, you wonder. Peter's mind didn't hearken back to the night that he was with Jesus in the garden. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, plunked them down, said, stay here, I'm going to pray, and he did. Jesus saw things clearly all the time. Most especially that night, he saw things clearly. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the cross he was facing. He knew the forsakenness that would occur from his father. He knew that he was taking upon himself the sins of his people. He knew what was going to take place. He saw it clearly. He was sane and sober that moment, and where it led him was to pray. He came back to his disciples. They were asleep. They didn't see it. They didn't get what, what was about to happen. They didn't understand the devastation of it. And, and, and we would have been the same. Perhaps they couldn't understand really what was going on in the heart of Jesus at that point in time. I don't know, but Jesus turns to them, you remember, and he says, be very careful because, you see, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is very weak. Watch and pray that is be sober-minded. Understand what I'm going through. Understand what's about to take place in my life and yours. Pray. Of course, they didn't. Jesus did, comes back, they're asleep. In other words, Jesus goes back to pray, comes back, still asleep. You might remember that it was the fateful night in Peter's life when he disowned his own master. And I wonder if he thought, Jesus prayed for me. Because Jesus did. Jesus said to Peter on that evening, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I pray for you. Peter says, please understand. Please understand what's at stake. The very glory of God. The very perseverance of your own life. Please understand the enemies that are coming against you. The world and its seductions. 
their own sinful inclinations, Satan and all of that, all those forces of evil. Because when you see the reality of all that, that should send you, not out beating your chest saying, I can handle that, or everything's fine. That should send you to your knees, seeing the reality of that, and saying, oh God, please help me. Please strengthen me. Please sustain me. In fact, that was Jesus' point. Even as he was telling the disciples about his second coming and about the end of all things, in Luke in chapter 21 and verse 34, he says, this is the very end of all that. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He says, be very careful. It's very easy to get sucked away. Verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Then Jesus says, but stay awake at all times, praying. So stay awake, be alert, be sane, see what's really out there. Don't get duped. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. And by escape, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to be whisked away out of this difficulty, but he's saying that you won't get sucked in. That's your escape, that you won't get sucked in, that you'll remain faithful, that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, Jesus said, the end of all things is at hand. Be sane and sober, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the purpose of your prayers. So then I begin to think, how do sane people pray? How do sober people pray? Well, let me give you some. From Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A sane person, a sober person, a person who is really seeing the reality of life is praying this. Father, what needs to happen here above everything else all my comforts and all my passions and all my likes and dislikes and all of that, what really needs to happen here, what's really important here is that your name be glorified and that your rule, your kingdom would come and your will would be done. That's what's really important. That's what's really necessary. It's not so much about the dent in my car. It's not so much about my microwave that doesn't work. It's not even so much about the job that I don't have or the cancer that I do have. It's about your name. And it's about your kingdom. And it's about your will. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's about me being in fellowship with you, God, and having nothing between us. So please forgive my sin. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil God. The evil one, God, I know that I'm weak. And I know the difficulties that will come. And I know the reality of the forces against us. And so I pray that you not lead me into trials that will overtake me, but rather that you will deliver me from all those enemies, from the evil one, and all the enemies that come against me. Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus, at that moment in time, saw reality. He looked out, the scripture says, and he saw people out there helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. 
but he saw clearly at that moment in time what was really valuable, what was really important. And it wasn't the little squabble between James and John. And it wasn't the little pride issue that Peter may have had. And it wasn't the problem that they may or may not have been hungry at that moment in time or didn't have a place to stay that night. What was really real and important and to be focused upon was the fact that here were people out there like sheep without a shepherd. And so what was really necessary would be for people to go in and to give them the gospel. That's what really was important. Jesus says this of Peter I mentioned moments ago and the other disciples in Luke chapter 22. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We need to pray that our faith be strong. We need to be running around saying, boy, you know, I'm really a very strong, faithful Christian. That's not a problem for me. I just have strong faith. You know what happens next? <coughs> a hole gets shot right in there. And you're back on your knees praying for faith because you see, the target of a Christian for Satan and the world is our faith. If only we can become unbelievers, then Satan has triumphed. That's what we need to pray, that our faith would be strong. Acts chapter 4, the apostles pray. And now, Lord, look upon the threats of the people and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. We need that. We need boldness to speak. In Acts chapter 14, uh, the scripture reads, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. You see, the target of the evil one is often on the leaders in the context of the life of the church. The only way I'm convinced I'm, I'm able to stand is because people pray for me. And I know that if any point in time people stop praying for me, then I will become weak. I know a light bulb just went off. That's not a sign from God. <laughs> it's all right. Bless you. You're so easily distracted. <laughs> Thus I'm convinced this word is for you. And me, I saw it too. If we're so easily distracted from the things of God, by a light bulb going, what if there's really something alluring? Ah, the danger. And so we must pray. Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The apostle saw clearly, he was sane at that moment in time as he lays out this whole book of Romans and he sees the great salvation that is of God. And so where does it lead him? It leads him to pray. It leads him to pray that his brothers will be saved. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle prays this. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He's saying, listen, if you're looking sanely at life, what you'll pray for is that you know God. What you'll pray for is that your hope in God will be deep and strong and unshakable. What you'll pray for is that you will know that his power towards you is great. And when he says he holds you, it means he holds you. And you're in no danger. 
Ephesians 4, the apostle says, for this, I, for this reason, uh, Ephesians 3, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When you're in the midst of difficulty, you know what you need? You need to know the love of God. You need to know that he really does love you. And so you need to pray to that end. When difficulties come, don't just think, well, I'm strong enough to handle this. I'll just suck it up and do it. No, pray that your faith would be strong. Pray that you would know his love. Don't be embarrassed to pray that. Don't be embarrassed to be shaking and say, oh, this might, this might do me in. Say, God, this could do me in, please. Let me know really that you love me. Philippians, or Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying. You see, when we take up the sword of the Spirit, we take up the word of God in the context of our own lives and hearts, and, and as we apply it in the lives of others, we don't simply just take it up and spout it out. We take it up praying. Why? Because we're weak, the word is strong, and we pray that God will use his word, and as Paul says, be enabled to speak boldly. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, the apostle said, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Saying, listen, what's really important, if you're looking at life sanely and soberly, is that you're able to see what's really important, and that is to know the will of God, and to know the will of God, you need to be one who loves someone else. Because if you, if you don't, you'll never see the will of God. You'll always be confused. You need to put aside all this and all that and love each other. But you mustn't ever think you're capable. You mustn't ever think that's easy. You mustn't ever think that comes natural. And so when you're thinking clearly, I must love, your first response should be, oh God, help me. Love. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Have you ever thought, why is it that God has called me to follow him? And of course, the answer is Jesus. He's called you to follow him because of Jesus, not because you're worthy. But now that you do follow him, would you not pray, oh God, please, Catch me up in this. Enable me to walk worthy of a Christian. Finally, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. If we're really thinking sanely, we know what the world really needs. And it's the word of God. To be spread rapidly and to be honored by people. Compare all of those with your normal prayers. And that isn't to say that we shouldn't be praying about the water that's leaking into the floorboard of our car or the fact that the price of oil is going up or that I wasn't feeling well or that I might get the flu. God is concerned about all those things, but it seems to me that we have a tendency to not be seeing. And the antidote to that is to embrace the truth that the end of all things is at hand. A 
Father in heaven. I pray for me and for us that we wouldn't be distracted by all the distractions that the world provides for us that come from even our own inclinations at times that even come from the evil one to put in our path, but rather we would see clearly. We would see clearly that there are things that are temporary and there are things that are eternal. And I pray that we'd know the difference between them and that we would not give our hearts to that which is temporary. And Father, we would see so clearly and be driven by that which is eternal. It would cause us then to pray, to pray for your kingdom to come, to pray for your will to be done, to pray for the forgiveness of our sins, to pray for others coming to salvation, to pray that we'd be strong in faith, to pray that we love each other, to pray that there's nothing that hinders us in our fellowship and relationship with you, that we have short accounts with you, that your word would in fact spread rapidly and be honored by all, that we would have the very wisdom and discernment of God to know your will and to do it. Father, I pray that we would be driven by reality and be driven to pray. And this we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction as you do. I remind you that there are elders available to pray in the office area. Please take advantage of that. There are times when our own focus gets so blurred that it's difficult to be sane and sober. And it's helpful to go to others, especially those in the church whom God has called to pray for you. It's their job, you know, that's their calling to pray for you, to shepherd you. It's not because they're all that cool, but it's because God has found them to be weak and called them to shepherd. So go, God will help you through that. The response to the benediction this morning is the simple one, and that is Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. Because if that's not true, nothing I said in the last 45 minutes makes any difference. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling to present you blameless before his gift presence, and that with great joy. The only one God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.